0: Um, we 're going to actually go to the book of revelation um, we 're not jumping right back in yet, but i want to I want to connect a couple of dots for us because we 've been working through the book of revelation um, but as i 'm sure many of you or most of you know we've we 've paused our journey through revelation to talk about spiritual warfare, and we 've sort of entitled our our mini-series, our in-between series, Battle Ready. So we're going to continue on that subject tonight. Um, But as I said, I want us to go back to Revelation, essentially right where we left off in Revelation. And I'm talking about Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Let me read this to you guys, and I believe the text will actually be on the screen as well. No, I'll read. Now war arose in heaven... And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The Bible speaks plainly um, about many things, many other things it leaves a lot of ambiguity around. But what the Bible speaks plainly about, we would do well to speak plainly about. The Bible speaks plainly about the fact that God created everything that's been created. We are his workmanship. The Bible speaks plainly about the fact that God loves his creation, he adores his creation, he's jealous for his children, he loves us. The Bible speaks plainly about the reality of sin and human rebellion and the dire situation that we find ourselves in apart from the rescuing love and, and, and redemption of our maker. The Bible speaks plainly about the fact that apart from God's rescue mission, apart from his plan of redemption, we were lost. We were utterly lost, we are even damned the Bible speaks plainly about the enemy that he has. Not just in Revelation, where things get a little uh, weird, but all throughout scripture, from beginning to end, the Bible speaks plainly, and Jesus spoke very plainly about the fact that there is this ancient being, sometimes referred to as the serpent, the Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, this maleficent being that's existed pre-humanity that hates God, hates his children, and wants to ruin any plans that God has for us in his beautiful, good creation. The Bible speaks plainly about God's great victory over evil, over Satan, when he sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And the Bible speaks plainly about the weapons that God has given his children to overcome like he's done. That we are to walk in the wake of his victory. The Bible calls us more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. How do we do that? How do we fight the good fight? How do we overcome uh, temptation? How do we defeat evil, how do we live this life that Jesus saved us for? Not just hold on until heaven happens or he comes back or something like that, but really live life, life to the full, overcoming evil and and deception and lies and the enemy. And and that's what we just read about in Revelation. So how do we get battle ready? Tonight, I wanna talk about our enemy's go-to weapon his weapon of choice, and that is deception. This is the serpent's native tongue. This is how he primarily goes about trying to undo God's good work in us. He lies. He deceives, he confuses, Confuses and attempts to keep the whole world living in darkness. How do we fight that fight? In order to answer that question, Two questions, actually. Number one, how does the enemy actually deceive? If, in fact, the serpent is referred to as the deceiver of the whole world, what does that look like? How actually is this evil being going about lying to people in the world? Because that seems a little abstract. So how does he deceive? And number two, very practically, how do we deceive? How do we overcome lies? Lies that work in our life and in the world. And in order to do that, we're going to go all the way back to where we are introduced to this deceiver. And that is, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. If as a church we're not consistently going back to Genesis, we may be missing a thing or two. Because so much of everything else that God reveals to us about ourselves, and himself is found all embedded in seed form right here in the book of Genesis. So if you're like, ah, Genesis 3 again? Yes, absolutely. Now the serpent. There's that serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord had made. He, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or that is the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Regarding the serpent's lies, Next slide, please. Um, Next one, please. We'll come back to that. I want to talk about three things that we see in these six verses in Genesis 3 that tell us something very, very insightful about how the enemy lies. That is that the lives of the enemy are personal versus propositional, affectional versus arbitrary, and subtle versus spectacular. So first of all, The lies that we see the enemy telling at the very outset, they're personal versus propositional. John 18. You might recall it's a fairly well-known scene when Jesus is standing on trial before uh, the governor of Judea at that time named Pontius Pilate. And there's this really odd exchange that takes place between Jesus and Pilate. Just before he's crucified, Pilate begins to ask him um, about his identity, the identity of Jesus. Who are you really? I've heard rumors that you're some kind of king. Sounds very political. What do you say? And they have this little back and forth, and Jesus finally says, my kingdom, this is John chapter 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said in response, what is truth? What is truth? If the enemy is a liar, naturally, he's trying to distort the truth. He's trying to twist or pervert or completely uh, hide the truth. But what kind of truth are we talking about? I would suggest that most of us are a bit like Pilate. We tend to think of truth in merely propositional forms. We think of like truth being uh, one plus one is two, we think very scientifically, we think empirically, we think factually, we think in, of truth in terms of well, like what is it real, what is truth? And of course we all like to think that we're these uh, modern, enlightened, relativistic thinkers, like, well, what is truth? And we all took philosophy in 101, and, and so there's this, this, this very strong cultural current that we're all living in now that says truth is relative, and somehow we've got very confused between like, truth and opinion. And instead of just talking about truth and opinion, we talk about like your truth and my truth. And I just, I can't really get my head around it. I mean, I get it because I took the class, but it just seems a little bonkers if you ask me. Um, so I get that everyone has an angle and a finite perspective on life and religion and existence, etc. But that doesn't necessarily redefine Reality as it actually exists. Truth as it actually exists. Like God exists or God doesn't exist. He can't just exist because it's my opinion he exists. And he can't not exist merely because it's your opinion that he doesn't exist. Either he exists or he doesn't exist. One is true, one is false. And we both have our opinions. But is that the kind of truth that we're talking about? In the garden... When the serpent, the deceiver comes and begins to conversate with Eve, is that the kind of truth that he's trying to subvert as he deceives the humans in the garden? Mm, No. We're talking about a very personal kind of truth. We're talking about a kind of truth that isn't like as if the enemy's trying to convince us all that like gravity's a conspiracy and the earth is really flat and if somehow he can get us to believe that the earth is actually older than 10,000 years and somehow that's gonna like just undo God's great plan of redemption. Like it's not, I don't think the enemy is bothered about whether or not I think the earth is flat. I've been watching really weird YouTube videos lately. <laughs> Have you guys seen that one? Crazy. Sorry, if you're a flat earther, sorry, I love you. Just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, we're talking about a different kind of truth. It's a personal truth. Let me back up to Genesis here. Um, Just to make the point even more. The idea of like relativistic philosophy being some sort of modern phenomenon—it's it's just not true. It's been around forever. In fact, if you just Google it, I mean, there's Greek philosophers that date back to like fifth century B.C. who were waxing like relativism all the way back then. Uh, Protagoras is apparently one of like the earliest Greek philosophers that was attributed to sort of exploring this idea of relative truth. In fact, you can, uh, an ancient quote of his, um, God only knows if he actually said it, but he's attributed, Protagoras, Protagoras is attributed with having said, humans are the measure of all things. We're talking about like early fifth century Greek philosophy, okay? Relativism is not a new idea. It's been around for a long time. And like 100 years later, Plato goes on to like debunk all of that. He argues quite strongly for the idea of objective truth, particularly objective moral truth. So it's not just like this new enlightened thing. Well, perhaps we've rediscovered it, but it's been around forever. But it's not the kind of truth that we're actually talking about. Now, I would say, I would qualify that by saying that in fact, the Bible is full of qualitative truth. Like it's not uh, devoid of like substance. It's not like there's nothing factual or historical about the truth that's conveyed in scripture. But the kind of truth that the serpent is most interested in subverting is much more personal than that. When he comes to Eve in the garden, he asks a question And the question has to do with God. It's a a seemingly innocent question. Did God really say? Just wondering, did God really say? I heard he perhaps did. Did God really say? And the way he's engaging, the way he's attempting to deceive or seed that lie is by calling into question the trustworthiness of God. You know, in the Hebrew language, so if you go to the Old Testament and you do a little word search on truth, that word in Hebrew is emet. It's actually translated a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. One way is often literally truth, quote unquote truth, but elsewhere it's translated as faithful or faithfulness. It has to do with the trueness of God's character or something or someone. Truth isn't just this abstract or propositional idea. It has to do with the very character of who God is. And this is the kind of lie that the enemy wants to sow in our lives. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth funny how the Bible tends to personify so many of these things that we keep in the abstract. In our pursuit of truth, we don't end with a list of propositions. We end with a person who is Jesus. That's the first point. Regarding the serpent's lies, secondly, they are affectional or affectional versus arbitrary. The enemy deceives us in a way that will always appeal to legitimate desires. Okay, he comes to the woman and he questions her about what God said or didn't say. It's interesting how the woman responds. Um, She says, no, actually, God didn't say that. Um, In fact, what God did say is that we could eat of any of the trees in the garden except for the one right in the middle. It's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's interesting, she even adds a little bit. She says, and we can't eat it, nor can we touch it, which God didn't actually say. If you just back up a little bit, God didn't actually say you can't touch it. Interesting side note, I think us humans have the tendency to add rules to the, like, the simplicity of what God has told us about what we should or shouldn't or can or can't do. Thus, consequences. We're constantly adding layers. It's called religion, religion. Um, God's not interested in adding rules. He wants to draw us into relationship, side note. But he appeals, the serpent in this deception is appealing to the human's legitimate desire. What does he say? If you eat the fruit, God knows that you, number one, won't die and number two, Um, it'll actually make you become like God. And like God, you will know good and evil. You'll be wise, which is a really good thing. And by the way, check it out, it looks delicious. It's a delight to the eyes and it's good for food. These are legitimate desires. Of course the human wants to be wise. Of course the human wants to eat the good fruit. It looks lovely, it's beautiful, beauty's good, it's tasty, It's, it's, it's good for substance. Okay, so what's the problem? What is the problem? The enemy will always appeal to legitimate desires. The enemy lies in a way that (laughs) it's not like um, you're not going to wake up one morning and you call your accountability buddy uh, because you've really been struggling with the temptation to do more chores around the house. And they're okay, how, how you, like, how you doing? How's, how's the fight? You walking, you strong? Strong? Ah, the devil's been after me. I just, I got this, this, I can't shake it, but I'm so tempted. I just wanna take the trash out all the time and I'm resisting, but man, the enemy's really, really after me. That's just ridiculous. The enemy will find a legitimate desire and offer to meet it because he's just loving like that. You know, there's a way for you to be wise. There's a way for you to become like your creator. Ironically, when God created the man and the woman, he himself said, look, I've made you just like me. You You are destined to bear my image. I want you to be like me. Think of yourselves like my children. I want you to grow up. I want you to bear my image. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to become mature, like any parents would want for their children. If we keep reading, in fact, eventually we'll get all the way towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and um, it says in Hebrews 5, 14, that, that spiritually mature people, people who uh, have graduated from just like milk, like a baby, to solid food, are actually meant to grow in their ability to discern between good and evil uh, through constantly practicing godliness. The man and the woman were actually supposed to grow up and to become like God and eventually learn The difference between, like, this is good, this is evil. This is going to bring us closer to our maker. This is going to screw things up. And I would argue that God always wanted his kids to grow up. The deception comes in where the enemy says, you know what? There is a way to do this that can completely circumvent God's very slow, laborious plan. There's a way to do this where you don't actually have to go through the entire process. There's a way to just skip to the end and you can become exactly like who God wants you to become. The irony is that, and this comes to our third point, not only is the enemy very intentional to target legitimate desires, godly desires that God has placed in our hearts, but he does it in a way that is so ridiculously subtle that you'll never ever see it coming the enemy he barely even lies he asks a question and then he says two things number one surely you won't die and number two if you eat this fruit you'll become like God the second bit was totally true in fact, if you flip the page, God himself says, well, they've now become like us. Their eyes have been open and they can actually discern for themselves the difference between good and evil. Therefore, we need to expel them from the garden because if they eat from the tree of eternal life now, they're gonna end up living forever in this condemned, broken, anxious state. We need to like kick off the rescue plan big time. But what the snake said would happen is in fact exactly what happened. So that wasn't even a lie. The only sort of lie that the enemy told was, you will not die. Did they die? Adam lived 930 years. Dude was almost a 1,000 before he died. Now I know what you're thinking, you're like, seriously? I don't know if the air quality was better. There was less cancer in the meat. Uh, honestly, I don't, I don't. That's like one of those bits about, I'm, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say about that. 930 years, that's a really, really long time. I'm gonna ask Jesus about that when I see him in heaven. But in a way, no, he didn't die. Not for like almost a thousand years. The enemy deceives he's like ridiculously subtle about it. Like you don't even realize what's happening. His deception is barely, it barely even registers on the deception scale. So what's the point you might ask? Are we all just, are we all just screwed? Like, like am, am I deceived and I don't even know it? Possibly. That is kind of my point, actually. What do we do? How do we overcome deception when this ancient being who's been doing it, who speaks it fluently and has been so for thousands and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of years, and like, how am I any better than Adam and Eve? They were walking in like sweet communion with their maker in the garden, and the serpent comes along, like, What what do we do with this? How do we overcome this? How do we know when we're actually believing lies? I would suggest the best thing to do is to do what Jesus said to do and examine fruit. Examine the fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. You will know that you're living out your life in the wake of deception by the symptoms that follow. What happened? What happened next? Let's talk about the symptoms of deceit. That's where we want to be. Thank you. Nope. Perfect. Let's look at this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Can we go forward? Two slides, please. Shame, blame, and relational Separation. The Bible talks about the fruits of the spirit. These are the, these are the fruits of the serpent. This is what happens when deception is seeded and begins to spread in the context of relationship. Shame, blame, and relational separation. Isn't it like a slightly bizarre story this idea that God said, "Don't eat this piece of fruit, otherwise you're going to die." They're deceived, and something happens. Like, what, like do, you, do you kind of wonder about the mechanics of that? Like what it, was, it, was it poisonous? Was, it, was that the thing? Was the actual fruit itself like somehow chemically poisonous, and that, that sort of triggered some biological chain reaction? Was it? Is it, is it metaphorical? Was, was it, like, what, what is happening? It's such a bizarre story. And why, like, why the fruit prohibition? Why, I mean, he put two people in the garden. Why not, like, here's my one commandment. Don't kill your spouse. Like, that would be a super logical sort of commandment to obey, right? You could be like, yeah, that makes sense, I'll do my best, okay? I'm pretty sure it still may have gone sideways, but at least that made sense. Why the, why the fruit prohibition? Don't eat the fruit. I'm gonna put it right in the middle of the garden. It's great. it's beautiful. It's, oh, it's just like, you're gonna want it, but don't do it. It just it doesn't even make any sense. It's a commandment that God asked his children to follow that, let's be honest, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I would suggest that the reason why God didn't give the man and the woman a quote unquote logical commandment because the point isn't for the people, for us to trust in our ability to reason It's simply, trust me. I need you to trust me. It could have been anything. Fruit's kind of arbitrary. The point was, God wanted his children to live their lives in a way to grow up, eventually attain wisdom, obtain wisdom, learn how to discern good and evil, become more and more like their creator, They had been created to do in the first place, but to do it in a way that they were trusting God. That's relationship. That is relationship. When they chose to run after wisdom apart from trust in God, something happened. I don't know how. I'm not exactly sure why. All we know is that when we choose the thing that looks so beautiful and delightful and appeals to a legitimate desire, apart from or outside of trusting my creator, outside of a loving relationship with God, something goes wrong. Anxiety ensues, shame sets in, and the humans immediately want to cover up. That's what we call shame the desire to cover up. I can just see the serpent coming along, whispering, You know you're naked. You know, you really should cover up. You look like an idiot. You know people look at you funny. You know when you leave the room, people kind of laugh and stare. Do you have any idea what people actually think about you? You really ought to cover up. You really ought to do something about that look of yours. It's shame. Something will always happen in our lives when the seed of deception begins to bear fruit and we know what's happening when we begin to want to cover up. I'm terrified that if you guys see who I really am, you're never gonna wanna come back here. I'm afraid that if I, if I, if I get vulnerable if I allow the people around me to actually know me and to see all of my faults and failures and my insecurities, you'll leave. You'll leave and I'll be alone. And so I must cover up. I must compensate. I must impress. I must make sure that my resume is up to date at all times. Because of shame. Shame has uh, this effect that when we find ourselves in it, immediately we need to figure out who is to blame. Who's to blame? Which is, of course, what happens in the garden. God comes looking for them. God, God comes pursuing. Just like a father, he comes pursuing his children, looking for them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? God wants to restore relationship. He initiates the process and the man says, the woman whom you, it's a double blame. Yeah. The woman who you gave me, God. I used, I, used to, I used to laugh at that. It is kind of funny, it's a bit silly. Um, I think there's another way to read it. I, think that, I don't think it's actually funny at all. Um, I think it's what we all do when we're living under the weight of shame. We have to figure out who is to blame? Who is to blame? It's it's called playing the victim card. I'm hurt, I'm embarrassed, I'm offended, I feel ugly, I'm terrified someone's gonna see who I really am, therefore I have to cover up, and I need to know who did this. I would say most of us, at some point in our lives, end up blaming ourselves. Even if someone did it to me, even if it was like my parents or that person that I trusted, my abuser, or, or somehow I'll end up blaming myself if I can't find anyone else to point my finger at. I might try blaming God for a while, but after a while it's like, come on, like who am I kidding, really? Or you can blame the person sitting next to you. You can blame your spouse, you can blame your housemate, you can blame your boss. But it's like our defense mechanism. I have to blame someone. In essence, I'm simply playing the victim card. I'm making myself a victim every time I'm blaming myself or someone else around me, even, excuse me, even God. Um, I love uh, John chapter 9. This is such a... Amazing Jesus moment. He's with his disciples, and they're walking through one of the the towns, and they they cross paths with a, a blind man, as they often would. And the disciples look at this blind person who's living on the streets, begging for money, and they turn to Rabbi Jesus, and they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus, he looked at the man, he looked at his disciple, and he said wrong question they said whose sin was it this man or his parents that he was born blind i don't even get that really who's the man what well, he he like sinned in the womb therefore he was born blind this is like a weird car- karma thing like or what well, his parents did something and now god's punishing them by giving them like a blind baby and jesus simply looks looks at him and he doesn't even answer the question as if to say, wrong question. You're trying to figure out who is to blame, and I'm telling you that the the point is that God wants to be glorified in the healing of this broken person, this hurting person. But how obsessed are we with trying to figure out who did this to me, who is to blame? Guys, I spent like well over a decade of my life blaming my insecurities on my dad. And then I went to therapy, and it was super helpful, and I realized, you know what I discovered? This is very helpful, being a dad. My dad's flesh and blood. He's a real, live human being who also had a dad that kinda messed him up. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean that like my feelings aren't real, or that I don't need help to kinda get over some emotional hurdles. But blaming my dad doesn't help me to get healed. Do I need to work through my daddy issues? Yes, and I recommend you do too. Super helpful. Or your mommy issues or whatever, whatever you got from your past. Stare it down, look at it, work through it, get help, and then move on. Because the gospel is a gospel of hope. Jesus is always pointing us forward. Look back long enough to figure out what went wrong and to put your hands on the plow and look forward because hope is ahead. Hope is ahead. And blaming the people around you only just digs the ditch of victimhood that much deeper. The point isn't to figure out who wronged you, who was to blame, who sinned. It's to welcome Jesus, our healer, our redeemer into our lives. Into our parents' lives, into our coworkers' lives, into every broken person's life around us. Because guess what? My friends, we're all to blame. We're all culpable. We have all sinned. Welcome to the club. And then, of course, separation sets in. How do we conquer? How does Jesus rescue us out of deception? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He said, I am the light of the world. I've come to dispel darkness. I've come to call you in to the light. He said that the truth will set you free And he goes on in the same breath to say that I am the son and the son whom the son sets free will be free indeed, he says come to me. I will undo the lies, I will untangle the knot. I will rescue you and I will teach you to walk in the truth and you will know freedom, you will know hope. You will know my victory and the serpent whose head that I've crushed under my heel will no longer hold sway in your life. How is the gospel the answer? Number one, Jesus comes to us in our shame, and He says, "You are naked." I love this about God—that He doesn't come to us and say, "Hey, buddy, you're all right. You're you're okay. Hey, you know, just hey, maybe tying up that fig leaf. You know, like you got hanging out a little bit there, buddy." No, He. I'm sorry. Erase. Erase. erase that image. It's late. Is it late? It feels late. <laughs> okay, good. He doesn't pander to us in our shame. He deals with it head on. He says, you are naked. You are riddled with insecurity. You're hiding in the bushes. You have sown fig leaves over your junk. Let me help you. Let me help you. I'm sorry. Am I am I just defending people for all the wrong reasons? <laughs> Blaming it on the time. You stand up here and look at all your expressions, right? Now. This, is, this is the. World. I'm going back up on my little pulpit here, and the hide. Jesus meets us in our shame. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't pretend like it's not real. He just simply says, let me cover you. You are naked, you are insecure, you are hurt, you have been sinned against and you have sinned against others, you're a wreck, you're going to die. Let me cover you, I've died for you. To take your shame away from you, to redeem you, to give you a new identity, so that you can experience what it feels like to be an adopted son or daughter of the king, God most high. Come to me, let me cover you. What does he do with uh, with the blame? He says, you're not a victim, you're a warrior, let me strengthen you. When we blame, we become the victim. And Jesus says, don't blame your neighbor, don't blame yourself. You can blame the devil, him I'll deal with, but don't blame anyone because you're not a victim. You are more than a conquer. Come to, come to me, let me strengthen you. Let me strengthen you and join me and become a minister of reconciliation. Come with me on the mission. Let me get you built up. Let me heal you, let me restore you, let me give you strength so that you can come with me and we can rescue others. We're called to walk out of blame. We're called to be set free from shame, not so that I can just feel good about myself so that we can follow our king in his victory and go on a mission with him to see others brought into the light. He says, be strong and arise, he fills us with his spirit, the very spirit of God who comes to live in us and teaches us this is what it feels like to be a son or daughter of the king. And regarding separation, don't run, don't hide, stay, be vulnerable, be known. It's not just about you anyway. It's about what Jesus wants to do um, with his body, the family. We're a a pocket of God's family and an actual local expression of what, what it looks like to be the family of God. Um, It breaks my heart when I think about uh, the number of people who have come in and out of this little church family that I love with all my heart. I feel so grateful to call Gray City my church home. And I know pastors who who honestly couldn't say that. It's kind of heartbreaking. I love our church family here. And I know for a fact that as we kind of doing our little thing, doing our church, doing life, we kind of bump into each other and we're like, oh, what the, excuse me, excuse me, what was that look? What was that little comment? Offended. <laughs> and the seed of deception sets in. You start to feel like, wow, well, I feel a little embarrassed by that little exchange, that little interaction. I feel like someone actually just saw me. And I, I, I think I'm just gonna cover that right up. In fact, maybe I'll just leave. How about that? Maybe I'll take a break. In fact, I think I'm feeling led. I'm feeling led to go elsewhere. And we do. We take our shame with us. We take our offense with us. We take our blame with us. We take it elsewhere and it spreads. It reproduces and we end up hurting others. We gotta stay, guys. And you know, I say this, and as I'm listening to myself say it, it makes me nervous because it can can sound like really culty. Like, don't go, stay here. Don't, other churches can't be trusted. Like, (laughs) obviously I'm not into that. Totally not into that. But let's speak plainly about church family and about the reason why so many people just end up going here and there and floating around. And it's it's a a lot of times, not because you got a new job in a new state, it's because you're offended. And you won't admit it because you're trying to cover it up so you find some lame reason to leave when in fact you're actually just hurt. In fact you're trying to compensate for an offense or, or a sense of shame. And I'm not trying to sound harsh, I'm not trying to like, like say, oh, you shouldn't ever get your feelings hurt, like toughen up, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it's really hard. I'm saying it's like impossibly hard, only by the grace of God, kind of hard. But I'm also saying that we gotta stay because if we're gonna be ministers of reconciliation, be on mission with Jesus in this broken world, we gotta work it out right here among us. We gotta figure out how to be family together. You must anticipate the fact that someone will eventually bump into you in this place and ruffle your feathers. And you will be tempted, just like the man and the woman once upon a time in the garden, to cover up and to blame others. And if we don't deal with it, we will leave. And relational separation happens. And that is not the gospel. That is not why Jesus came to rescue us. That is not the family of God. you feel challenged? I, I hope I hope you do. It challenges me deeply. I hope it challenges you. Ephesians four. Can we stand together, please? Can I invite the band to join me, please? I want to end on this little bit of text because I said that I wanted to say something very practical about like, okay, so we've talked a lot about the nature of the enemy's deception. This, this is how he lies. Um, these are the symptoms or the, the fruit of the serpent. So if you're experiencing shame, blame, or separation, uh, just take a step back. And ask yourself, prayerfully ask yourself the question, am I, am I kind of like got some sort of weird deception going on? Am I, am I letting the enemy actually find a point of leverage in my heart? You just, just ask yourself the question prayerfully. But then how do we like go on the offensive? How do we actually like proactively um, not get deceived? And I would say the Bible is very practical. Paul writes uh, to the church in Ephesus, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is what we're talking about. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body, the family grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we get together as brothers and sisters and begin to speak truth and love to each other, uh, deception cannot survive in that setting. It's very, very hard. This is why, as a church, um, we do ecclesias. It's what we call our, quote-unquote, small groups. And it's not like a side project. It's not like this little optional thing if you happen to be in that, into that sort of thing. This is an integral part of how we, we live and thrive as followers of Jesus, as a church family. It's by getting together regularly and being vulnerable with each other. We center around Jesus We look to his word, and then we talk about how we're applying it in our lives, what we're thinking about, and occasionally, you might have a thought pop into your head. It might have something to do with shame. You might be tempted to blame someone, perhaps even yourself. And in that moment, you go to your ecclesia, You go to your small group, you get around your people. You've been doing it for months, so there's like a little trust there. And you say, guys, I've been thinking about this all week. Something happened, and this is what's been on my mind. What do you think about that? Does that sound like I'm listening to Jesus or something else? Because this is really hard for me right now. And to be honest with you, I could barely even bring myself here tonight. Because I'm just mad at the church. I'm annoyed with people. Simon's really starting to grate on me. Like it's been months since he really preached a good one you got your people your brothers and sisters who know you who love you who can speak truth to you versus logging into your echo chamber finding someone just to affirm your offense or your blame you guys know what I'm saying? that's that's what culture tells us to do. Log into your echo chamber and someone will just affirm your, your rage, your offense. The people of God, they say, no, 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 hang on, just, just, no. This is what I've been thinking. What do you think? Tell me the truth. I know you love me, so don't hold back. Am I, am I, is this the enemy or is this Jesus. Talk to me. And we do that. We speak the truth in love. So if you're not in Ecclesia, here here it is. Here's the big challenge the practical takeaway. Guys, you gotta figure it out. Gotta figure it out. It's for the mission, it's for the family, it's for the bigger picture, it's for God's dream for this city and for our lives. It's not sexy. It takes a long time. It's not gold dust falling from the sky. It's just simple, plain, old-fashioned, Christ-like relationships that usually take a long time to build and are super risky to take part in. That's how we roll. Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to Grace City, Portland.